Welcome to the fourth quarter conference call for GWK Investment Management. This call represents the views and opinions of GWK Investment Management and does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be considered predictive of any future market performance. On the call today is Harold Kotler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer, Bill Sterling, Global Strategist, and Jim McCarthy, Partner and Director of Private Client Services. As always, we will kick off the call with some opening comments from Harold. Good morning. Calm has come to Washington and the country, which uh, provides us a view and a look-see into what might be happening in the future. We will talk about that in some detail in this conversation. But I think it's important to recognize that is this or is this not a tipping point of change? Will the Democratic Party uh, in only having a, a 50% representation in the Senate really change dramatically the course of the country? Or, or will there be some uh, imbalance in how they go about the decision-making? So I think it's an incredible time, and I think it's an important conversation. And Bill and I will delve into some of our beliefs and hopefully provide not clarity, uh, but uh, the ability to have you think about what might be forthcoming in the next six to 12 months. Thank you, Harold. Um, and before we tackle what's been happening in the U.S., I would like to ask Bill to give an update on international markets. So first, uh, Bill, how has Europe dealt with the latest wave of COVID, um, economic shutdowns, and Brexit? Um, are the economies holding up? Have they turned the corner? Well, it's very interesting to see the divergence between the economies and the markets in Europe because, um, you know, they did have perhaps uh, six weeks before the United States a significant upwave in the uh, virus infection, infections, unfortunately. They responded with most of the major economies um, imposing pretty severe uh, restrictions, you know, lockdowns. Uh, and as a result, most economists are now believing that Europe is technically experiencing a quote-unquote double-dip recession, negative growth rates in the 35 to 5% range annualized in the fourth quarter of last year and in, in continuing into the first quarter of this year. That said, the markets in Europe have had one of their best periods ever in the fourth quarter of last year because I think it's fair to say markets are looking through this um, temporary weakness in the European economy towards pretty significant double-digit rebounds uh, starting in the second quarter uh, due to optimism about the vaccine and the effect that can have on things getting back to uh, normal. So it's um, you know a pretty different market reaction versus what the economic data seems to be showing. So, you know, prior to COVID, the past few years, European economies were experiencing sluggish growth. Do you feel that the pent-up demand and stimulus and rolling out of COVID could jumpstart the uh, economies? I think it's pretty likely that you're going to see that. In fact, around the world, you're seeing savings rates being extremely elevated because particularly, uh, you know, in the services part of the economy, people just can't spend the money. But uh, government stimulus has been very large everywhere. And uh, as a result, there's a lot of, quote unquote, dry powder, um, you know, savings, pent up savings and pent up demand uh, that could lead to pretty strong growth rates coming out of this. Um, you know, many uh, European economists are looking at, uh, you know, potential double digit annualized growth 
in the next few quarters uh, in Europe. And of course, Europe's done some things like they couldn't do before the pandemic, such as issuing joint bonds um, from the European Union, um, which uh, is a breakthrough. And, and you know, that's, that's a lot of money that's going to get spent over the next couple of years. So the fiscal stimulus side of things, uh, it's not quite as, as high as what we're looking at in terms of fiscal stimulus in the United States, but it's very significant. Thanks, Bill. Um, and one more question, you know, away from Europe and, and, and developed countries, you know, China looks to be one of only the of only a few economies with positive GDP growth in um, 2020. Is their economy back on pace for the growth it experienced prior to COVID? Uh, if you look at the fourth quarter GDP, which was up six and a half percent from a year earlier, uh, that is basically right back at the pace uh, that uh, China was uh, experiencing prior to COVID. Um, so their economy has seemed to have gone from strength to strength because the public health response uh, to the pandemic was so effective early on, it let them reopen, it particularly helped their export industries because a lot of Chinese factories were open when the rest of the world uh, was closed. Of course, they make a lot of the PPE that other countries have needed during the pandemic. Uh, and so most economists looking at China expect them to have a pretty strong year of potentially eight to 9% growth in 2021 based on both a resumption of consumer spending in China, as well as exports continuing to be pretty strong. Great. Thanks, Bill. Uh, now we'll turn back to the U.S. And, and, um, and recent events. So, Harold, we started off the year with two uh, important political events. And on January 5th, the Democrats won two Georgia seats, uh, Senate seats, as you had mentioned, giving them some control in the Senate. And then, um, unfortunately, on January 6th, we witnessed protesters storming the U.S. Capitol during a session of Congress. Uh, these events have dominated the news in the past two weeks, yet markets have largely ignored this. Um, equities up modestly uh, so far this year, and interest rates have moved higher. Are you surprised by how resilient the markets have been, and what do you think investors are focused on? Well, I mean, the market looks beyond any one event. Uh, even this pandemic could be considered a hurricane, a tsunami that had a very bad impact but short-term in nature and uh, in in time um, it will be something in the in the rearview mirror but what is happening which is needs a lot of consideration is that probably the vaccine rollout will be more efficient the money supply is going to be increased and fiscal policy will now be a much more important factor on the economy. So when you put those together, uh, one could argue that we have an incredible amount of stimulant uh, pumping into this economy. And what does that really mean? And I'm struck by the fact that you say interest rates went up a little. Yes, they did. But, you know, the 10-year is still sitting at almost 1%. And... Um, uh, and, and, and it has not spiked to 120, 140, 150. So the, the question really is, is this economy's uh, stimulant going to be inflationary or not? Or will it be a short-term spike and the money handed out to the consumer be utilized and not have long-term impact? Or will it have a, a run rate to it? We don't know this. 
we don't know what a uh, the Senate will pass. Uh, just because it's, the Democrats have 50 seats does not mean that they all agree on what policies are appropriate. So this is not clear. So we, we are at the beginning of a new administration and new policies, and there are those who think that it's going to be very inflationary, giving all the stimulation going into the system in the next three to six, nine months. Other people say, well, it may not. The money may not be utilized. I wrote my quarterly letter arguing that this money might be hoarded and may not get into the system. and We may not have the multiplier effect that one hopes. Partially, it depends upon how the money is, is uh, prorated, who, where it goes, how smartly the government uses this deficit spending, and how sustainable the economic stimulation is. Meanwhile, the stock market looks beyond all this, and uh, whether that's smart or not, I think has a lot to depend on what interest rates do. So I think interest rates will be uh, the canary in the coal mine that will tell all of us uh, what we might be thinking six, nine months from now. Thanks, Harold. Um, we're going to move on to uh, just discussing equity valuations a bit. I'm going to start with Bill. So in 2020, we witnessed a widening gap between the performance of growth and value stocks. Uh, the S&P 500 growth index was up over 33%, while the S&P 500 value was up only 1.36. Um, so historically, have we seen outperformance like this before, and you, do you believe it could continue? Well, Jim, you know, on the data I look at, this is about as extreme or the most extreme we've ever seen, although it's comparable to what we saw during, say, the, the tech bubble time of the late 90s and early 2000s, or during the big dislocation between value and growth stocks uh, around the time of the global financial crisis, 08, 09. Um, but, you know, typically, of course, when you have this much of an extreme in performance, uh, at some point, there's a reversion to the mean. Uh, what Harold just said about the uncertainties about how much growth is likely to come back through the stimulus and so on, uh, whether it means higher interest rates, will have a great deal to do to uh, um, you know a great deal of impact on how much value can recover versus growth. So far, the value, the S&P value recovery, has only been about five percent or so relative to the the huge gap you mentioned, the 33 percent gap or so that it lost during the value uh, you know underperformance period. So it could potentially have legs. But a lot is just going to depend on how robust the economy will be. You know, one interesting thing is, though, we also saw a dramatic difference between small cap and large cap, um, you know, with a similar type of 30% underperformance of small cap through about the, uh, the end of September. But much of that was made up uh, in the fourth quarter alone. So um, typically in recovery phase, small cap does come back uh, roaring. And uh, that's what we've seen. And, you know, that potentially has legs as well. Great, thanks, Bill. Um, and Harold, so more on the story here. So an extension of the growth and value story has been the increase in speculation in, in momentum stocks, uh, stocks without earnings, the emergence of platforms um, such as Robinhood have brought so many more investors into the market. Um, do traditional valuation metrics still hold up when, when we are comparing, let's say, an industrial stock or a utility stock with, with, with firms such as Google and Facebook and Tesla? Um, do we need to adjust our thinking beyond traditional methods such as price-to-earnings ratios? Well, that's a very good question, Jim. To, to the extent 
that interest rates stay this low, very low, that also means that the economy continues to be sluggish, which also means the value stocks will continue to have value, but really won't have the legs to really provide uh, major opportunity, earnings increases, and uh, appreciation, in my mind, that if interest rates stay this low, people will seek uh, where companies are growing. Now, you mentioned companies that the truth is they're growing. They are growing. These aren't dead bounces. These are companies that are doing fabulously well. Now, their valuation, in, in some cases, seems ridiculous. Sometimes they seem appropriate. But if interest rates are this low and there is not a lot of basic growth within the system that we're fairly mature and we're stuck uh, in a small growth environment, people will see those companies that really have a long runway and buy them. And I think if interest rates were to go up and the economy will get stronger, I think you would have a reversal. Now, I don't mean interest rates going up a half a percent. I mean, if interest rates went up one or two percent, uh, the Treasury, the 10-year went to two, two and a half, three percent, then I think it's, it's, it's indicating that the big basic economy is going to be growing and that one doesn't need to chase the few real growth uh, stocks at these valuations. It will shift their attention to um, basic companies that will have a better chance to grow in a growing economy. So I think it goes back to interest rates. Uh, at 1% or zero interest rates, uh, risk is on. This, and this, the alternative for an investor is uh, volatility and risk to opportunity because basically in, in a sluggish economy, the, where does one put one's money? It's a dilemma. So it, again, I hate to uh, hop on it, but I think this interest rate focus is incredibly important. Not the short rate. Short rate will stay low because the Fed controls it. I'm talking about the 10-year rate. Uh, that's the housing industry, that's debt, that's infrastructure, that's that's the key to the, the system. Thanks, Harold. Uh, one more question on valuation for Bill. Um, so looking overseas, over the last decade, we've seen U.S. markets post significant outperformance versus international developed and emerging markets. Um, so over the past 10 years, the S&P 500 has returned over two times the return of the MSCI EFA index of developed countries and over three and a half times that of the MSCI emerging markets index. Um, so, you know, with this lag and, and then we talked about growth in, in areas like China, I mean, do you think there's opportunities globally? Are valuations attractive there? Uh, yeah, certainly, Jim, if you look at uh, valuation barometers like the so-called Schiller PE, which is price versus 10 years, trailing earnings that tries to smooth out uh, any kind of cyclicality in the earnings side. You know, you're looking at the U.S. Schiller P.E. at about 30 times. Uh, the EFA markets, uh, you know, basically Europe, Japan, um, and a few of the smaller countries at about 20 times, and the EM uh, index at about 16 times. So um, the international valuation barometers, because of the underperformance you mentioned, uh, do look uh, pretty attractive right now. Now, a big headwind for the international markets in the last decade has been the strong US dollar. 
um, because that, of course, um, you know, uh, cuts into uh, returns for U.S. investors in dollar terms. Um, I think there's a reasonable chance that the dollar is going to be in a multi-year, um, you know, decline because we've seen the U.S. trade deficit begin to blow out. The twin deficits of the trade deficit and the budget deficit are as large as they've ever been on a combined basis. Yet we're trying to finance that with keeping rates zero uh, for an extended period of time based on Fed policy. So that would seem to be a recipe for currency weakness. And typically those international markets have tended to outperform uh, global markets during periods of dollar weakness, both EFA and uh, particularly EM. EM tends to be really geared towards uh, to do well when the dollar is weakening. So I think both the combination of the value picture, but potentially the currency side of things um, you know, makes the international markets a pretty interesting complement to an investor's domestic uh, U.S. Uh, you know, stock portfolio holdings. Thanks, Bill. Um, so back to the topic of interest rates. And uh, as Harold mentioned, we, we recently saw the 10-year Treasury cross 1%. Um, to put that in context, we, we started 2020 at 1.88% on the 10-year Treasury and, and saw a low below roughly around 50 basis points or a half a percent during the year, um, especially during the summer last year. So, Harold, um, you've given us some of your feelings already on, on, on rates, but you know, how far do you think rates could go before the Federal Reserve maybe steps in and tries to control it? Or do you think the Federal Reserve would step in if, the, let's say, the 10-year Treasury went closer to 2% this year? I think 2% would be okay. Um, and uh, if it did, you know, I, I'm hoping that, you know, as bond investors will take advantage of that rising interest rate. Um, because right now it's very hard for people to earn a, any amount of income from their bond portfolio. So we have to, uh, as always, the rates rise, we'll take advantage of those rising rates. I think if it did spike way, well above two, like three, I think the uh, the the Federal Reserve would step in because I don't think they can afford. I think they're always worried about deflation, and if we ever went back into another recession, given all the monetary and fiscal policies now on the table, they'd be hard pressed to turn this thing around. It's uh, we're right on the, uh, the the knife's edge on this, so they need to keep it going. I know they want 2% inflation, and maybe they can have that opportunity, and maybe that would be perfect for them. Um, but they certainly don't want it to drop back into recession. And if uh, intermediate rates went uh, too high, too fast, it really could uh, break the back of a recovery. It also deter is determined by how fast we all go back to work, how fast we are vaccinated, how fast these economies recover, how fast uh, people get reemployed. You know, after the housing industry cracked in 08, 09, uh, people couldn't find people in construction. They all disappeared. Uh, they all found different workplaces. Uh, when, and when this comes back, you know, to refill all the necessary jobs that have been lost won't happen overnight. So there's certainly going to be a delay. So that may, you know, it may be that this year we'll skate through uh, and the market may be okay because of that. But as this all happens and they continue to throw money at this economy with interest rates this slow, um, 
the question is the fear of inflation versus the fear of recession. I'm telling you, we're right on the cusp, and the Fed is on new ground as we all are. There's no predetermined um, chemistry that we all have in place to know how to uh, really understand what what will be happening. And looking at Japan, you can come with one result. Looking at Europe, you come with another result. You know, now debt as a percent of GDP is over 100%. People forecast it might go to 200%. To keep on throwing this kind of money into the system, does it overheat? Um, and then rates go too high, and we reverse, and the economy goes back down again. Uh, so uh, everybody's on is on, uh, on edge, and they're trying to be as cautious. But right now, with a vaccine not being distributed properly, uh, they know they have to throw money at the economy. And it's not that I disagree. The question is, what, what's the follow-up to that? Will be there more stimulant money? Will be another trillion dollars behind it? And where will it go? Who will benefit from it? Will it be long-term or short-term uh, stimulant? Uh, we don't know these things. And therefore, the, the bond market will have to watch this as it relates to inflation, recession, inflation, deflation, stagnation, all these things. They're all on the table. Uh, and, that, and that has a lot to do with what stocks do, when which stocks do what. Great. Thanks, Harold. Uh, last question. Um, so in your recent newsletter, you mentioned uh, with rates being so low and possibly staying low, investors need to revisit present asset allocations and evaluate different approaches. Um, so where does an investor who is conservative and traditionally has been heavy in fixed income need to look to generate reasonable returns? Well, it's a real dilemma, and I feel very bad for those who don't want volatility but want to make a decent re return or are living on uh, some, you know, their assets. It's a real dilemma. Uh, what we've used uh, in our company is stocks with nice dividends. Uh, if you can buy companies where dividends do increase, you have a constant uh, rise in cash flow. And yes, you have volatility, uh, but you'll have volatility in bonds because if interest rates go up, bonds will be volatile too. So there's no free lunch anymore. The days of 4 or 5% risk-free returns uh, do not exist. So people, even with people who need income, really have to be willing to accept some level of volatility. And uh, that's the unfortunate part of this economy. So I do hope rates go up a little to give some breathing room to those who want to depend upon bonds. And you know, it's our job to lock in some of those higher rates. But I don't believe that rates will go up high enough to sustain a life cycle. Uh, you know, the, historically, Four, five, six percent has been what's been available in the bond market over the last, ever since the 70s, ever since the OPEC in the early 70s. And that, I don't think, well, we won't see that again in our lifetime. If interest rates went back to five percent, we'd be in a we'd be in a recession. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, neither wants inflation nor recession. So maybe interest rates will get back to 2.5% and it'll allow some cash flow. But in the end, people have to invest. 
diversify. I argue that diversification, as Bill suggests, in Europe, in Asia, the United States, large cap, small cap, value, growth, you have to do it all because no one is smart enough to figure out the right formula. And I know what is not the right formula is just sitting on uh, cash because that will pay zero return and short rates will stay close to zero for probably an extended period of time. Great. Thank you, Harold. And that concludes our call. Thank you for listening. We wish you a happy and healthy new year. And as always, please do not hesitate to reach out with further questions.